Hello and welcome to the supplemental lecture for chapter six, wherein we'll be discussing group communication a little bit further. Now, this goes along with the lecture we did in class, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment, where we did a lot of definition of defining groups, we'll talk about groups within organizations, as well as the roles each person fulfills within a given group. On Sunday, February 25th, I did want to bring this to your attention. Reflection essay number two is due, and topic check number four is due. Both of those things are due at 11.59 p.m. The reflection essay, I think if you, especially if you enjoy music, you'll really enjoy it because it involves a band of your choosing. Topic check number four, pretty much the same as all the other topic checks that have come before it. But once again, I beseech you, take your time. You have 30 minutes to knock it out. And so no need to take uh, losses that you don't need to take on those points. Next week, we'll talk about business writing, which is chapters seven through nine. And we'll also study for the midterm exam, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. All right. So what we talked about in the in-class lecture, if you're listening to this or watching this before the in-class lecture. This is what we will talk about, but there are different group types. We talk about primary groups being face-to-face, -face, deeper communication. These are usually your family, your close groups of friends. Secondary groups, more what we're talking about here in organizational communication as typically they have shared goals in common. Maybe they're task oriented. Maybe they were formed to knock out a certain task, but these are groups that you are a part of in your life where they might add a little bit to your self image, but they don't define you necessarily. But we also talked about how groups are necessary within an organization. Groups help to bring Order. Many companies, including Zappos, which is the example that we used in class, have tried to operate without concrete groups or with groups that were ever changing. So Zappos went to something called Teal and it was found that employees spent more time trying to figure out what they were doing and trying to figure out their relationship to one another than they spent doing actual work on most days. And so this was obviously a negative thing. And therefore, groups are necessary within organizations, regardless of whether you have a flat or highly hierarchical group structure. So with that being noted, let's take a look at the member life cycle for a particular group. So this is independent of the group life cycle that we talk about during the in-class lecture. This is specific to an individual that might be joining the group or might be coming in or out of the group. I apologize if you're watching this, there's a sunbeam coming across my face. It's right about 5 p.m. as I'm recording this and the sun is setting, so apologize for that. But the member life cycle starts out with a person being identified as a potential member. And they can be identified by the organization or they can identify themselves as a potential member of the group. They graduate from there to being a new member of the organization. So if they're accepted into the group or accepted into the organization, they become a new member. Then eventually, after training, onboarding, socialization, all of that stuff, they become a full member. And as a full member, their job is to basically uphold the code of the group and participate fully in the group, maybe even help to onboard and train others in the group's ongoings. Then you have the divergent member. This is a member that's kind of peeking out the door a little bit, kind of thinking about what their role actually is within the group, if they might not be better served 
in a different group. You have a marginal member who is quite literally one foot out the door. They're kind of just participating in the group as a function to get things done. We see this a lot in an organizational context. Once someone has put in their two weeks notice, they would be considered kind of a marginal member. And you know that person, sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't give full effort and they're not completely committed to the goals of the group. And then you have the X member, and this is a member who has left the group. They no longer consider themselves part of the group. They consider the group as part of their past. So those last three, the divergent member, the marginal member, and the X member, we won't talk about in too much further detail, but I do want you to know that it is a gradual process. Divergent member might start to see you know, cracks within the group or might start to see the group's goals as maybe veering off from their own. That marginal member, again, one foot out the door, and the X member, they've left. The group is a part of their past. But I did want to talk about those first three parts of the life cycle in a little bit more detail. So talking about the potential member part of the life cycle, you know, a lot of what we talk about in this class is business or organization related. But one thing I want to kind of drive home about this is this is the case for many, if not all, groups. In order for someone to become a part of the group, there's got to be interest on either the part of the organization or the part of the member. In most cases, the vast, vast majority of cases, you don't just wake up one morning and suddenly you're a part of a group where the group didn't want you and you didn't want to be part of the group, right? So there's got to be interest on one side or another. This is also the case we see this outside of a workplace atmosphere in things like volunteer groups and things like religious organizations faith-based organizations. So ultimately, there's going to be interest on either the part of the organization where they're actively recruiting you to become a member and trying to uh, sell you on being a member of the group. Or maybe there's interest on your part where you look at that group, say, hey, all the cool kids are in that group. I want to be a part of that group too. And in the best case scenarios, there is mutual interest there. And ultimately, that's what we'll talk about the socialization process and the hiring process later on in the semester. That's really what the hiring process is on the part of organizations is to evaluate interest both on the part of the organization and the part of the member. And where there is mutual interest, usually there ends up being a hiring. Then once you're the new member of the organization, like I said, we'll talk about socialization later on in the semester, but you begin to learn the rules, the norms, the customs, and also you might change yourself or the organization to adapt. We'll actually look, when we discuss socialization later on in the semester, of circumstances where people have joined groups and have actually changed groups in order to better fit their own personal goals or their ways of doing things. This is especially true of management. When management gets brought into a group. But ultimately, a lot of times, we might change ourselves to adapt. I think the simplest explanation or simplest example of this is maybe working a third shift job where you ordinarily sleep during the night and you eventually adapt your sleep schedule to get used to staying up overnight and working that third shift job. Or maybe you're working a job that starts at 6 a.m. and you don't usually wake up at 5 a.m. to be ready to go to a job at 6 a.m. And so this is a very simple adaptation of self. But other ways you can change yourself is in terms of your approach to either work or the goals of the group as a whole. Or even in the best case scenario, the 
role within the organization or the group forces you to kind of refine your life approach in a better way. Now, as far as the full member is concerned, by this point, you've been trained in the norms and the customs of the group. It's your job then to provide guidance to new members, maybe provide some leadership within the group. We'll talk about management communication also later on during the semester. And so you're providing guidance, you're kind of showing people the ropes, but you're also one of the main drivers in terms of what the group is aiming to get done. And so as a full member, you're really kind of the driving force within the group. And also at this point, the group has taken up a main spot in your self-image. If someone asks to tell a little bit about yourself, if you're a full member of the group and you are invested in a group, that might be one of the things you tell them is, hey, I'm a part of this group or I'm a part of this organization or I work for this company and you are fully committed. So you're not foot out the door like you would see with a marginal member or divergent member. Let's talk now about silos. So this is completely kind of changing uh, the scope of what we were talking about to this point during the lecture. We talk about membership roles and how you filter through from becoming a new member to an ex-member. Well, silos are something that are important to group communication within an organization. So what is a silo? Well, it's basically a group of experts that's separated by a department, specialization, or location. So within PPSC, there is, for example, a silo of folks that teach communication classes, just like there's a silo of folks that teach history classes, or teach biology, or nursing classes, or teach welding classes, so on and so forth. Now, groups can often be siloed to give people within the group a greater focus over their role or task. If we were just lumped into one enormous department and there were English teachers and communication teachers and welding teachers and, and phys ed teachers and all of these types of teachers there, it would be difficult for us to focus on what we were supposed to be doing. And whoever would be in charge of that group, they would have it difficult as well because then you're trying to create rules and norms and guidelines for all of these different types of teachers. And so the silos can actually help in terms of the group focus and in terms of management. If you're managing people with a similar role or a similar task, it becomes a lot easier to handle that responsibility. But there are drawbacks to silos, and these are drawbacks that I want you to know going forward. The first drawback is that there's internal competition for resources. So for example, the communication department at PPSC might be combating with the nursing department at PPSC for certain organizational resources or certain attention maybe. Maybe it's even marketing or media attention. There's oftentimes internal competition for resources where maybe the accounting side doesn't like the marketing side or vice versa. There can also be duplication in effort. So if we had at PPSC two different departments of communication, we might end up duplicating a lot of effort because we don't know what's going on with that second department of communication. This is the case where you have sets of teams, teams or something, they're a group type that we'll talk about in our in-class lecture, that are set to do the exact same thing. So you might have eight teams in your marketing department, many of whom have similar goals, and if each of these teams are siloed off, they both might be working on the same exact thing and not know about it and not tell the other person. And then they each roll out the same exact advance or product or project, whatever it is. And there's this duplication and effort. We could have saved months of time working on it had we known. 
we also sometimes when they're silos make decisions without the correct information and part of this is because there's not that communication in between groups rick watson who is a uh, kind of a, a corporate culture consultant of sorts says hey it's important for these groups you know the marketing department to be meeting with fulfillment to be meeting with the accounting department and all of that so that everyone knows the correct information. For example, if the marketing department plans out this massive ad campaign and they only have a slight idea of the budget, but not a very good idea of the budget, and they roll out this ad campaign, well, accounting might say, well, we're way over budget, or maybe like, why are you leaving so much money on the table? Maybe there was more money to be had. So silos, sometimes when we're not communicating across the silos, we can make decisions without the correct info. So if competition and competition for resources, duplication and effort, making decisions without the correct information, all of this comes back to communication across silos. If we had good communication across silos, maybe we would be able to avoid some of these drawbacks. And so some firms with the more flat hierarchical structure have made it a crucial part of their plan to de-silo everything. Well, again, there are drawbacks there, but ultimately you can save a lot just by making sure that heads of silos meet. So let's talk about groups and meetings because meetings, when you talk about them in a business communication context, a lot of times I'm sure you've heard the phrase like, well, that meeting could have been an email or that meeting could have been a text message. Meetings have sometimes a negative connotation in a business communication context, but meetings at the very same time are necessary to share information and de-silo. So not always are they a waste of time. And in fact, sometimes if you make a meeting an email, people just delete the email. They don't actually take time to read the email. So meeting in person can be important because you can bounce off ideas, you can ask people, hey, will this work? And you know that they're interacting with that content in real time. So what we see during meetings is if a meeting is regularly occurring, group roles are oftentimes reaffirmed or strengthened. So meetings can be in and of themselves kind of like a miniature study in group communication. Let's say you represent group A and you go to a meeting with representatives from group B and group C, and this is a regularly occurring meeting. Well, the three of you as representatives, or if there's more representatives at the table there, they have their own group dynamics. And so you may serve one role within your group, but you might serve another role in this meeting situation. Now, irregular meetings, the interesting thing about irregular meetings, and one of the reasons why meetings get a bad rap is because oftentimes they have to go through the stages of group development too. And we talk about the stages of group development in the in-class lecture, but again, one of them is storming. So you're literally kind of uh, fighting over certain ground or fighting over certain things. And so as you go through the stages of group development, this can be a hassle. This can be a little bit of a pain and it can be tough to keep everyone on task. So general best practices, especially for irregular meetings, are simply to have an agenda and even to constrain the amount of time given to a particular agenda or given to comment on a particular item so that we kind of move through. There's other certain tactics that you can use within a group setting as well. If you're in a meeting setting and maybe you don't meet with others all the time, maybe you limit 
how often other people talk. I've been in meetings before where each person can only talk a maximum of five times. And this is designed to keep someone from kind of taking over the meeting and we only hear from them and we don't hear from maybe the more quiet or timid ones at the table. So there's a lot of different ways to make meetings more effective, but ultimately it's interesting. A lot of researchers suggest that the ways to make meetings more effective have to do with meeting more regularly so that you're not always going through the stages of group development and that every time you meet, you're basically putting the pedal to the floor, you're pounding the pavement, whatever it is, and you're getting work done and you're addressing what you need to address within the meeting rather than storming and norming every single time you meet up. Wanted to talk very briefly also about groups and computer-mediated communication. This does have to do with meetings as well because so many times now we're in these Zoom meetings. I think we figured out during COVID that it was a lot more convenient for everyone to just join a meeting by their computer versus maybe joining a meeting in person. Computer-mediated communication is defined as communication that takes place through digital networks. So video conferencing, audio calls, text messages, emails, any one of those things. That's considered what we call CMC. Now, CMC is great in that it can be really super convenient. I can attend meetings from the comfort of my own home, from my own laptop, and I don't have to actually drive to a meeting room. I don't have to set up there. I don't have to you know, make small talk with everyone in the meeting can be very efficient in that way. But there are some drawbacks to computer mediated communication. And most researchers find that CMC is three times to six times less efficient than in-person communication. Part of this is because of the loss of various types of nonverbal information from others. And that's why I have some tips on the screen here for you, but I'll read them over if you're listening in podcast form. For audio-only CMC interactions, clarity, inflection, and pronunciation are very important, so don't mumble through these meetings. If you're asking a question, try to raise your voice such that everyone can hear. And because there are no visual cues, it's important to talk more slowly. If you're just operating off of audio, you have to speak at a listener-friendly pace. This is something they told us all the time when we were in radio. You know, if you're listening to the radio, you can't really rewind something and listen to it again. So if you're a DJ talking about a concert coming up in town, you want to make sure that you're talking relatively slowly so that people can actually digest the information. Now, if you have a two-way communication format, you can always be asking and checking for understanding, which we want to do in CMC anyway. For audio and video interactions, we want to be aware of gestures. So gestures, especially if your hands are up here and in front of you as you're talking, they might be covering up your face. It's important to be cognizant of your vocal tone. It's important to be cognizant of your background. If there's stuff going on in the background that might be distracting for those that are on the call. And the other thing we have to keep in mind, and this is for either audio and video interactions or audio only interactions, anytime we introduce technology, issues with the technology can occur. They can cause interruptions. People might have slow internet access, like it seems I do about 70% of the week with my CenturyLink internet. So checks for understanding are more have to be more frequent. So it's important to check with your audience base and say, hey, did everyone get that? Does anyone have any questions? And to do that a little bit more frequently throughout the course of the meeting. One final note we'll make regarding 
groups is that which touches the world of teamwork. Now, teamwork is defined as a group interacting to solve a common problem or achieve a common goal. It's very straightforward. We've all heard the term teamwork probably in our lives. Teamwork is frequently applauded. It's a good thing, but it can also produce negative results. So it's important to obviously have your group all pulling in the wrong or all pulling in the same direction, pardon me, but what if that direction is the wrong direction? So if everyone agrees on doing something completely terrible, well, that's what happens obviously with these uh, massive, massive scandals like you had with Enron back in the early 2000s, like you had with WorldCom in the early 2000s. Everyone just kind of goes along with what is a really bad and unethical idea. And these are examples of groupthink. This is the tendency to accept a group's ideas and actions despite individual concerns. And one of our things as humans is many of us don't want to rock the boat. We just want to go along with it. We want to be told what to do. We might be abdicratic in this fashion. And so we might not step outside the decision-making process of the group with our individual concerns. Now, some people relish this type of role. These are uh, the blockers of the world. Uh, these are the dominators of the world. These are the types of people that can maybe push back against the group think, which is why it's important to not always maybe necessarily have consensus within a group, but just be aware whether it's in meetings or outside of meetings, that groupthink can make us do things that if we weren't in a group, we otherwise wouldn't do. They can make us go down a really negative path. Now, group work can be great if you bring a lot of different perspectives to the table. And this is why we're finding out that diversity, not only of race and sex, which is how we typically think of diversity, but diversity of background, diversity of age, diversity of experience, so important when you're creating a group whose job is to problem solve or get things done because you can utilize all of that experience and make sure that you're maybe doing the best thing possible or that you're keeping a number of different perspectives in focus. Now, if you don't have that diversity among a group, you can still avoid groupthink just by kind of playing devil's advocate or kind of being empathetic to the ways in which you're thinking about how your group decision may impact other people, including those people outside the group as well. That does it for the content here for the chapter six supplemental lecture. Just a quick reminder, reflection essay number two and topic check number four are due February 25th via D2L at 11.59 p.m. And again, next week, we'll talk about business writing and we'll be studying for the midterm in class as we get time to do so. Midterm here is in a couple of weeks. It's in early March. So if you need anything, certainly check out the course syllabus. It's under the content tab in D2L. Or if you have any questions for me, feel free to reach out to me via email. Once again, my email, trent.kling at pikespeak.edu. Everyone have a great seven days and we'll be back with some writing content in the next supplemental lecture.